sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Well, you know, here here we are, Aaron and me. We are uh, churning these things out, trying to keep up with the hectic pace of bookings. Thank you, Justin Schwind, for bringing us uh, all of these great guests one after the other. We got a good conversation coming up. Uh, I don't know about you, Aaron. I'm still in uh, getting my feet back under me from the weekend <laughs> retreat in Eva, Tennessee, and the work day that followed uh, at the uh, the Samson House in Mount Pleasant. The Harbor. The Harbor, yeah. Uh, I'm so grateful for the guys who, who came and got things rolling there, uh, doing demolition and picking up furniture. We're getting so much furniture donated. It's crazy. So good. It's such a big house. We need yeah. to put something in it. Yeah, that was, that was <laughs> uh, just a really fun day hanging out. And yes, I am still. It is Wednesday, so... 48 hours later, I'm still tired. I want to take a nap. Yeah, I get you. Yeah. I know. Uh, my my alarm went off this morning, and I just did not want to climb out of bed. Still, But I got to tell you, I am just, I'm still feeling uh, the gratitude, the optimism, the hope, the sense of momentum, uh, all the positive things that came from getting together with all those Samson guys for that length of time. Uh, in a beautiful spot. Every year I look forward to it more than the last. Yeah. And yeah, it's yeah, never yeah. disappointing getting to just sit around having conversations throughout the day and around the campfire at night. And yeah, boy, this yeah. was the year of the pipe smoking. So graciously, somebody lent me a corn cob pipe. Did they really? Yes. Well, gave me actually, gifted me a, a lovely little corn cob pipe. So that was fun to just stand around i guess that's my once a year pipe smoking time now we'll be at the retreat well i i, I hung around on the fringes of the campfire to ignore uh, to enjoy a secondhand uh cigar and pipe smoke i can't i can't i can't inhale directly it just i uh, i'll taste it for a year i can't do it but i love to be around it when other people are yeah, it's not, nothing like a pipe. I'm not going to say the same for cigar. I don't particularly enjoy the smell of cigar smoke, but pipe smoke, huh? Anyway. All right. But so I wonder if, I, if we did a poll, a Samson poll of pipes over cigars. I wonder what. I wonder. I wonder how that would balance out, and how many people would say neither. I think most would say neither. But yeah, I yeah. got to say, I think the pipes won out on the cigars. This year, I sure seem to see a lot more of that, which was great. We all look so sophisticated, like, you know, we're hanging out with C.S. Lewis or something. I Well, I tried to be a pipe smoker back, I mean, I'm, I'm, when I was like 22 years old, I'm, at, I'm in seminary at Princeton, and uh, the scholars that I respect, you know, they have a look. They have a look. You know, they got the, the, sweet you know, the jacket. Sweet yep. jacket with the, with, the, with the patches on the, at, on the elbows. A lot of them, a turtleneck, uh, a flat uh, ha- a brim hat, cap, yeah, uh, uh, horn rim glasses if they wear glasses, and then the pipe. And uh, I could pull everything off. I got the I got the uniform right, 
but I, I just couldn't do the pipe. I tried it once and just turned purple. Well, you do know there's pipes that you can blow bubbles with, so you, you, it didn't have to be a tobacco pipe. Put a little uh, disc open there, blow some <laughs> bubbles while the other guy's doing their thing. <laughs> Actually, that's, uh, I had not thought of that for years. When I, when I was studying Shakespearean acting, it was a... What? Oh, here, Lamont, there's a chapter of Aaron Porter's life that I have... What? You I didn't know that? I up on this. Well, I yeah. knew you were. I knew you were down in Hollywood. You're around film and actors and all that kind of stuff. But I have never heard the word Shakespearean escape your lips before. Ah, seriously, Shakespearean yes. acting? That was super fun. But it was a four-hour class, three days a week. There was a wow. guy from the Royal Shakespearean uh, Academy that came over. He came every four or five years to do this class, but. But there would be these long breaks because obviously it was a very long class and everyone would go in the courtyard uh, in Uh the acting and music building at my college and they would smoke. And I didn't smoke. So what I learned, and listeners, you can try this and you'll be super cool. (laughs) I I would borrow somebody's pack of cigarettes Mm -hmm. and then slide the cellophane up so that from the bottom of the box, there was a gap in between the cellophane and the box. Okay. Then I would borrow someone's cigarette, touch it to the cellophane. It would make a little circle, burn a circle. I'd turn it around and carefully put the lit end in my mouth and blow smoke into the gap. And then I would stand there and just tap the box and it would make perfect little smoke rings. So everybody would be smoking and I would be too by tapping a box of cigarettes. Wow. Every every day. That's that's YouTube worthy. I would like to see a demonstration of that. Yeah, I, geez, I haven't thought of that since 1994. I kind of want to do it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that would be a very compelling uh, uh, YouTube video. You should do it. <laughs> okay, maybe I'll go buy a pack of cigarettes sometime just so I can do that from time to time. <laughs> All right. Hey, we got a great guest. Enough of this. Enough Enough uh, smoking stories. But we got a no, that's terrible. I'm not going to say we have a smoking hot guest. That doesn't sound right. Yeah, but we do have a great, great. guest. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he might feel good about it. That's very affirming. Is Awkward, okay. but affirming. <laughs> You're going to like this, listeners, when we return on the Pirate Month Podcast. And welcome back to the Pirate Month Podcast. We have the privilege uh, this week of sitting down, Aaron and I, with uh, a couple therapists, primarily. I guess the ther- well, I don't know how properly to introduce you. His name is George Batar. He's joining us from Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, George, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, this is a, yeah. This is exciting. We just, I mean, I know this will be put out long after. Uh, the retreat weekend, but we just spent a whole weekend with a lot of tools about conflict resolution and how to uh, deal with a partner that maybe has gone through trauma and how to respect that. And so I am excited for some of the stuff that uh, you are involved in and are an expert at. I'm going to get more tools. I might be single right now, but I'm going to pick up some tools and put them in my bag. <laughs> That's great. Well, the, the nice, the challenging thing I'd say about being a couples therapist and having Faith and I, she's a couples therapist too. 
and we run the practice together and we've been together for, for about 20 years is that uh, I have moments of feeling like an expert and then I walk through the door at home <laughs> and I am continually humbled about um, how much work and energy and um, how I, how little I have figured out at points. So in, in the middle of arguments with your wife, and I assume there are arguments from time to time, do either of you ever stop and say, I know that we know how to do this better, but still we're going to keep doing it this way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's the, that's the humbling part is we have the extra layer of shame attached to it that we have to work through. Cause it's like, <laughs> Oh my gosh, we know better and we're still not getting it right. Oh, and uh, I, what makes yeah. me, what I wonder is, does it, is it ever a trigger to either of you when the other partner is doing something that is patently therapeutic? It's like, it's out of the <laughs> textbook. It's like, don't freaking textbook me. Does that ever happen? When we first got married, um, I remember, I think we were learning about reflective listening. We were in graduate school together. <laughs> yeah, 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 and yeah. There was a moment where Faith really artfully and kindly and empathically mm-hmm. re-summarized back what she heard me saying uh-huh. and everything in my system. <laughs> It just pushes you off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it made me angrier. So we've we've had to find kind of our own path of how to still use the tools in a way that that it works for us. You know, which is what I try to do with couples. They have to. At the end of the day, it's the spirit of the tools. They have to make it their own to make it sustainable. And uh, yeah, it turns out analyzing each other doesn't end well. Um, (laughs) Trying to say like, hey, I bet what's happening for now is this thing that happened 20 years ago for you and your child. That doesn't end well. <laughs> so we've been through our negative cycles enough moments and know each other's disconnection cues right. to where they still happen, but um, yeah, we're, yeah. we're better at the repair and they tend not to get as escalated. There's not well, as many okay. nights on let's, the couch. Um, let's start there because that, I love the phrase disconnection cues. Mm. To, to I learn. haven't heard that before, but that's a wonderful wonderful phrase yeah to to learn and this i mean this doesn't have to be a spouse this can be co-workers bosses employees to learn what words are going to create an instant wall so that everything you say after that word or phrase is not going to be heard you got it you got it how how or is there a good way to discover those more quickly and without it simply being, okay, I've damaged you for eight years by saying this, I'm starting to learn. How do people learn another person's disconnection cues? Yeah, no, that that concept kind of comes through a lot of the emotionally focused couples therapy work where Mm -hmm. you're getting really clear about what the trigger moment or disconnection cue is. Because otherwise, these cycles can feel really, really chaotic for couples, and they're in them, and they're not sure how they got in them. They're not sure how to get out of them. So part of organizing the cycle is being able to tune into and talk through, like, what are the exact moments that trigger my nervous system into that fight-flight kind of freeze energy and response? Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then ideally, you know, on, on good days, it would happen in real time, right? Like, Hey, you just said that thing and that really hurt and made me feel Mm -hmm. disconnected. And I'm wondering if we can start again or if we can find a way to soften that. So that's kind of an in the moment repair um, that the Gottmans focus a lot on. And then there's also the, uh, the moments where the cycle just gets activated, where couples get stuck in those pursue withdrawal dynamics 
and uh, they're not able to really take in their partner's experience. And at that point, they have to get unflooded, move out of that fight flight kind of energy. And then ideally, okay, they would come you, back you have, and reconnect. Uh-huh. You have said a number of words. The What was the first one? The push in and retreat, but it wasn't those words. Oh, Cut yeah. Pursue withdrawal. and retreat. Withdraw and, withdraw. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Flooded. And then being yes. flooded. I went, this oh. is awesome stuff. Okay. So t- tell us about those. Yeah, and maybe I'll make it more concrete and and talk about Faith and I's uh, cycle because okay, you know we've we've been in it for a long time and we've gotten better ways to navigate it and and repair once the disconnections happened. But our typical cycle is when Faith feels disconnected, and there's lots of ways. If I'm not paying attention, if I'm not present, that for her signals a danger cue, disconnection cue. Uh, from my experience, she's not here to speak for herself, so take this with a grain of salt. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and uh, But she tends to then move into a stance that for me can feel more critical, where she mm-hmm. gets shorter with me. It feels like to me more irritable with me, mm-hmm. which for me sends a disconnection cue. That's a trigger cue for me. Like, oh no, mm-hmm. something's wrong. We're in disconnection. Now, what I typically do on a good day I could understand like, oh, she's just feeling disconnected. She's not really angry with me. She's not really upset. She still cares about me, still loves me. Um, And I could turn back towards her emotion and like, oh, I'm sorry. I did disconnect from you and I'm here with you now. You know, let's, let's, you know, kind of try to find a way forward and connection moving forward. You oftentimes what happens though, is for me, I take that danger cue and my go-to is to withdraw or shut down or numb out my emotions. Mm -hmm. So I pull further away from her, which, so I tend to be more of the withdrawer in the relationship. Now, what I'm really feeling on the inside is kind of sad, kind of afraid of the disconnection because it doesn't feel good when we're not in Mm -hmm. close contact and close relationship. But that's not the message she's getting from me when I shut down on her. She's actually Mm -hmm. getting the opposite message which is reinforcing her fear of not me not being present with her. And now mm-hmm. we're playing out her worst case scenario. And then what she tends to do as the pursuer, she'll tend to turn the volume up further and pursue mm-hmm. harder, which to me feels like more criticism and more hearing about the ways I'm screwing up, which makes me feel worse, more afraid of not being able to get it right, not feeling competent in the relationship. And the way I deal with that shame and hurt and the pain of disconnection is I tend to pull back further, which then reinforces her fear response. And then she might escalate until she withdraws herself. And then at that point, we tend to come back and do a pretty good job of repair. But it's all about, like for her, me not being present, um, me going into defensiveness, me shutting down on her. All of those are danger cues for her nervous system. For me, feeling criticized, feeling like I'm not getting it right, all of that activates a big shame response in me, and then I tend to cope with that by shutting down. The tragic, dark irony in these cycles is that the messages I'm sending to her are the opposite of really what I'm feeling. She's seeing Mm -hmm. me get defensive. She's seeing me numb out. She's seeing me get cold with her, which understandably she would interpret as, see, he doesn't care. He's not engaged in this relationship. I don't matter to him in the way he matters to me. And he's not going to be there for me when I need him. Right. What I'm really mm-hmm. feeling is terror, fear, sadness, all of those things. So we have to get to that conversation, those underlying emotions. Right. 
oftentimes to then move back into a repair dynamic and to reconnect again. But being very clear and the good part about, especially if we're living with someone and married to someone, we have lots of moments of learning over time how to be sensitive to their danger cues and also their safety cues too. What makes them feel close? What makes us feel connected? What makes us delight in the relationship and feel joy in the relationship? And being able to tune into that really organizes what can otherwise feel like a chaotic kind of dynamic. Yeah. Mm. This is such a good advertisement, Nate, for having a Silas. Yeah. The person that you call every day, one of the biggest changes I saw was having to say what I was emotionally feeling in core emotion language, not nuanced language, every day. Mm-hmm. Because in, in those moments, I'm just picturing how those disconnection cycles have happened throughout my life. Mm-hmm. And if I were in your spot, George, and I could articulate this, I'm I'm feeling like really disconnected. It's making me feel sad and I'm feeling afraid. Everything you're feeling is because you love her enough to have those fears. You wouldn't feel that with a stranger, which is why you're saying it's the opposite. And to be able to have in the moment, active emotion language conversations seems like it would save us all so much trouble. (laughs) <laughs> really and the emotion yeah. i'm so glad you hit on that the emotion is so key because without the emotion we don't have the data to know what we're needing uh in the moment and the emotions yeah. signal our needs and values so if i'm feeling in that moment sad or afraid if i'm feeling sad these emotions also have such a strong relational significance to them and function to them mm-hmm. so if i'm feeling sad i'm needing another person to comfort me If I'm feeling afraid, I'm needing another person to reassure me. If I'm feeling angry, I might feel like there's some kind of injustice or something unfair happening. I need to be heard, but I need to express the anger in a way that's relational, that honors my partner's emotions. And if I'm feeling joy, oftentimes I want to spin that up and share that as well. How do you develop with your wife a process that makes you feel safe? Because in that moment, if you're feeling afraid, it means you're feeling unsafe. So letting her know what you're feeling so she can be the one to care for your heart is incredibly vulnerable because she's the one making you feel afraid. So how, how do you set the stage for feeling like this is safe to be vulnerable in that way? Yeah, it's, it's great. And you kind of got to the heart of one of the fundamental dilemmas in intimate relationships when we're in disconnection mm-hmm. is the person that's causing me to feel afraid is also the very person, maybe the only person that I need to feel safe again. And there's such a dilemma in that. Um, And the nature of trauma is not having a relational way to work through that, to be stuck in that dilemma without a clear path back to repairing connection. So you're the one causing me fear and I also need you for the comfort. What a weird dynamic and dilemma that puts us in. I always start for couples, I always start if they can talk about that dilemma. You know, they don't have to override anything. If I can turn and say, hey, I feel like shutting down because I'm feeling afraid. If I can share that tendency that I have in the moment, I'm not shutting down. I'm talking about wanting to shut down, which is a very different thing. And then we can talk about what we need from each other to get closer into connection before moving the issue and continuing the discussion itself. So being able to talk about those things, being able to develop emotion language, I think is super helpful. There's been great work done by Mark Brackett out the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. 
He has a very elegant or complex model of emotion. There's been a lot of great work that's done um, by a lot of people in this group called AADP that focuses a lot on how do we stay with our core emotions, experience our core emotions, tune into what the core emotions are signaling in terms of our values and needs. Susan David's done some great work on that as well. And then to use that information to engage and to kind of bypass the cycle and get to the heart of what our actual experience is and what we need from each other to feel closer, to feel safer, to feel more connected with each other before continuing any sort of content discussion. I wonder if you could help me, George, by uh, some concrete examples from your experience. What are some possible or typical disconnection cues and safety cues? That's great. I think the Gottman work is is pretty good about identifying what are kind of the a lot of the core disconnection um, moves, behaviors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and they talk a lot about you know criticism, you know, starting a discussion more with focused on you and what I think you're doing wrong versus yeah, what, right. what I'm feeling and the positive need. This is what I'm needing more of in the relationship mm-hmm. to feel closer. Contempt, obviously, is a huge disconnection cue. That's a huge predictor of divorce and infectious diseases, even it erodes the immune system. It's pretty profound how much we need our nervous systems in balance for our immune systems to function and how much relationships play a role in that. Um, Defensiveness is a common disconnection cue, right? If I'm not accepting Mm -hmm. influence from you, it doesn't mean I'm agreeing with you or appeasing you or just going along with whatever you say, but it means I'm allowing your experience to impact my experience and taking Mm -hmm. it in and allowing it to shape my thinking and my emotions and seeing it as valid. Um, So defensiveness is another common disconnection cue. And then stonewalling, um, where people shut down on each other and stop engaging um, and refuse to continue the discussion. That's obviously a huge disconnection cue for a lot of couples. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's anecdotes to each of those. There's tools that can help couples practice the alternatives to those. Because um, mm-hmm. really so much of what I'm focused on is, one. number one, what's the couple's goal? And usually the couple's goal, fortunately, is to be in connection and to have mm-hmm. a safe, emotionally responsive relationship. And then what are the strategies that serve that goal? And what are the strategies that work against that goal? You know, what's adaptive yeah. or maladaptive given that goal? And the thing with criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and contempt is that they work against that relational space of cultivating that sense of safety and closeness to have a productive conversation. And if the goal is to have a connected relationship and to have a healthy relationship, if it's a goal for me is to be heard and to be understood and vice versa, I need my partner online with me Mm -hmm. in relationship Mm -hmm. to be able to accomplish the goal and criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling really work against that goal. So oftentimes yeah. with couples, I'll, you know, I'll reframe what I hear them saying just without the criticism, defensiveness, and stonewalling mm-hmm. and uh, start with the emotion. And yeah, it makes sense. Like when you're feeling afraid and you're feeling disconnected when your partner's not available, that's a terrifying, scary place for you to go to. And it makes a ton of sense. That in that mm-hmm. moment, you might protest the disconnection by talking about what's wrong with your partner. But underneath right. you talking about what's wrong with your partner is really this fear, really this sadness. And can we take mm-hmm. a moment maybe to spend some time with that, to tune into mm-hmm. where you experience that even physically, and then to also tune into what those emotions are signaling 
And then can we make that process relational? Can you share that with your partner as opposed to what you think your partner is doing wrong? And that expands the dialogue. It creates the space for people to go more into their experience, to deepen their experience. And I also try to hold space for uh, people are complicated. We're all, com- I'm complicated. I can yeah. have five different emotions online at one time, some of which mm-hmm. are contradictory. And I want to create a dialogue that's expansive, that moves mm-hmm. into greater curiosity. And if I can help someone to share with their partner, like, yeah, when you pull back from me, I do feel angry with you. Mm-hmm. That is, that does feel unfair to me. And I do mm-hmm. feel sad, you know, and I'm needing you to stay more online with me. And mm-hmm. I'm needing your sense of comfort, even in this moment. That's a much, you know, that's a dialogue that moves us out of the negative cycles into something much more authentic and securely attuned. Yeah. George, I don't mm-hmm. know what the, the question is with this. So maybe we can find the question. As you're talking about this, I'm just picturing a couple working towards this, getting a shared language, taking those risks. But in my experience, so so many spouses that I have talked to, one spouse really wants to grow and engage the work. And the other really isn't that interested. And even if they will tolerate going to a counselor or are given a book, they'll rarely read the book. What, what do you say to the listeners who are like, I love everything George is saying. That's what my heart's desire there's no way my husband or wife will engage this. In fact, they might even just mock me or pretend that they'll be involved, but it'll disappear within two weeks. What, what do we say to them? And what, I don't know, is there any helpful advice for how they can get that ball rolling in the right direction? Yeah, it's a great question that, that probably speaks to more of the pursuers in the relationship, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, that are, tend to be more verbal, tend to feel more motivated to work on the relationship itself. You know, the, the formula of starting with the Gottman's talk about the soften startup, you know, being able to share, you know, like, Hey, I really, really love you. I really want to be connected to you. And there are moments where I don't feel that way. And that's really sad for me. And that's a scary place for me. And I'm wondering if we can work together on working on the relationship or doing some things so we can feel better in the relationship and more secure with each other. So that's kind of the softened startup approach, you know, from the Mm -hmm. pursuers that tend to move more into criticism or contempt. Um, The softened startup is kind of the the go-to place there. But I think for me, I'm always, you know, ambivalence is so normal with the couples I work with, there's often one partner that's more leaning into the relationship and one more one partner that's more ambivalent. And I really try to work with taking people where they're at. And if we can explore the blocks, that's so mm-hmm. much of the work of therapy. Can we just identify what makes the more withdrawn partner withdrawn? You know, what's what, their what have you found what's are their some experience? of the <clears throat> what are some of the most consistent sources of ambivalence that you've found? Because it can look like just, oh, just apathy. They just don't care. But apathy really isn't the right word. Ambivalence, whether or not I can say it, was the perfect word for that. So what are some of some of the most consistent foundations that they've built ambivalence upon? 
I think there's a lot of dynamics that don't get attention and a lot of negative cycles that have been spinning in couple relationships for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and for the partner that's used to withdrawing and pulling back and detaching in the relationship, those grooves can run really deep in the, in those more escalated pursue withdraw dynamics that have been ba- barely destructive. So it can take work to kind of get that withdrawn partner feeling some sense of hope. And this can be different family of origin trauma. That's really probably more than anything. If a person yeah. in a family where people could talk about their emotions and model healthy relationships were modeled for them and they could feel afraid and angry and sad and, uh, and joy and trust that their caregiver would turn towards that experience and meet them in their experience and undo the aloneness of the experience and help them metabolize the emotion through the channel of connection. If that wasn't that person's experience, understandably it's adaptive to shut down the emotional systems. It's adaptive mm-hmm. to not have a lot of trust in other, another person being there for me when I need them. Mm-hmm. It's adaptive mm-hmm. in some ways to feel like there's something wrong with me. Because as a child, if there's something wrong with me, there's still hope I can get connection from my parents because I can be a good enough kid or I can work hard enough. If I frame it as there's something wrong with my parents, that's even more terrifying for a child. So children will often internalize and come out with these negative views of self. And so much of it for me goes back to those early attachment, family of origin experiences. And we need others in relationship to metabolize and work through these emotions. And we have a five-year-old now, so it's it's need to see the emotional system without all the defenses stacked upon it quite yet. And we'll mm-hmm. do our best to keep her from having to move into a more defensive stance with some of her emotions, but life will happen. And you know, peers will become more influential at some point. And so I try to be relatively realistic about that. But man, when she's feeling afraid, she doesn't have to spend a lot of time identifying it. Like her nervous system, her heart rate increases, her muscles tense up, and she really naturally takes that fear and seeks relationship. And mm-hmm. then so if she has a nightmare, she'll come in and, and you know, we'll hold her. And the fear will initially get more intense. The sadness will get more intense because now she feels safe to express the emotion. And then the emotion's like a wave. It'll hit a peak and then it kind of gets metabolized and moved through her system and she gets re-regulated. And the same thing with anger. Like if she's anger, if she's angry, that's totally okay to be angry. You know, I'd be mm-hmm. angry too if someone set a bedtime for me or threw me in a sleep sack uh, when mm-hmm. I didn't want when I was wanting to watch a show or something like that. And so, you know, we really work to like, it makes sense. You're angry. Totally get it. It's not okay to slam doors when you're angry. Mm-hmm. It's still time to get ready for bed, but we get the mm-hmm. anger. We understand the anger. If that was somewhat of the spirit of someone's family of origin experience, they have a pretty good model of how to navigate emotions within the context of relationship. They probably have a pretty good view of self. I'm worthy of love pretty good view of other. Other people will be there for me when I need them. Um, But tragically, traumatically, oftentimes that's just not the case. And, um, And the thing I do enjoy about couples therapy, I enjoy a lot of things about it, but one of the things is that in that danger cue moment, you see the entire person's family of origin history in a single moment. You see what happens when a certain emotion comes online. And you see the move they do to cope with that emotion that was likely adaptive in their childhood. Mm -hmm. 
but just isn't adaptive anymore, given their goal of being in connection. So when I feel afraid, I tend to shut down still. I, I, it's a work in progress. When I feel sad, I tend to shut down, especially if it's activated in the relationship. It was great that I could shut down sadness and fear growing up because mm -hmm. oftentimes I didn't have anyone to share that with. So it made sense to not add to the pain of trying to share it only to feel worse of no one being there for me. So mm. that same adaptive strategy, well, it was adaptive when I was six, but it's now very maladaptive uh, at 46. <laughs> you know, so, mm -hmm. so updating mm -hmm. those algorithms, updating those patterns. Um, but part of the reason those patterns are so hard to update is they were helpful. They were necessary mm -hmm. at a yeah. point in time. And those grooves run deep and they're quick. Our emotional systems yeah. run really, really quick before our prefrontal cortex is even registering yeah. or processing a lot of what's really happening for us. So you said your daughter has her nightmare. What's her name, by the way? Penelope. Oh, Penelope, that's great. So Penelope has a nightmare, comes into you, and you say you expect the fear or whatever emotions to escalate because there's safety and then withdraw. And I am wondering if that should be at least a partial expectation for people who are starting to work on the things you're saying. And as safety starts increasing, certain things might initially look like they're getting worse. And they're like, that George guy was full of shit. This is totally getting worse, but maybe it's not. So what's the adult version of that? Yeah, that's that's a, a, a great piece to normalize. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like if I'm if we haven't felt a sense of safety to express my sadness or express my fear or express my anger, even in a in a healthy way, um, once I finally get enough safety and space to express that, um, it's likely to become more intense and to be able to frame that as like, that's a healthy, good thing. If it's mm. shared in a way and processed in a way that serves the relationship. And I don't see the intensity of, oftentimes it's the opposite. The more intense the emotions get, the more safety and the more um, things are being worked through in a really mm. truthful and honest and grounded kind of way. So I think that's an important thing to normalize. That often happens, right? Where I check in with you and say, you know, how are you feeling? How are you doing today? And then all of a sudden a tear comes to your eyes and you become sad. And, you know, that's, and it, and it sort of allows you space to move into your experience and to be more vulnerable with me. I'm not causing you to be sad in that moment, right? Yeah. In fact, mm -hmm. I'm causing you to feel connected with me in that moment. And we're just uncovering the experience that was already there. I see mm -hmm. that a lot with couples working through some sort of um, affair recovery process. Mm -hmm. Their partner turning towards them and checking in with them um, on how they're doing. When their partner mm -hmm. then expresses their sadness and anger, they're not creating that in that moment. They're just allowing their partner to express the thing that they're carrying with them on a day-to-day -day basis that's not being expressed. And so being able to frame that out and normalize that I think is, is, is important for sure. And that, well, that gets to our tolerance for emotion and complexity of our experiences and our complexity and tolerance for our other, our partner's experience too, which, you know, can, takes practice, you know, to be able to tolerate and to trust that we can go into those deeper emotions, go into the more intense emotions 
And on the other side of this is greater connection. If that hasn't been the pattern, it can be really hard to trust that on the other side of this is more connection to self and more to connection to mm -hmm. other. And it takes yeah, work yeah. in reinforcing that pattern to trust and for that to become self-reinforcing over time. You know, George, I'm glad you mentioned a fair recovery. Uh, <clears throat> you know, that keys right into my experience, Allie and me, probably the biggest stress in, in, in our 43-year marriage was a 20-year period of infidelity on my part, but which went largely unexplained until it was discovered. And I've heard enough uh, Samson uh, guys uh, tell me that they really identify with my story that I can say with confidence that a significant percentage of our listeners today um, have had, have experienced, have been either on the giving or the receiving end of marital infidelity. Uh, can you help us understand how that muddies the waters? Uh, you've already touched on it, but maybe you can expand a little bit on kind of where the, where the work of recovery, if it, it is to be successful, and that's not a foregone conclusion. Where that really has to begin, what are the what what, what are the basic challenges that we're going to have to meet in the wake of a partner's uh, cheating? Yeah, great question. I appreciate the the disclosure. Um, yeah, the the so much of what I see in in affair recovery, it's a lot of those patterns I mentioned, kind of on steroids. Mm -hmm. with even more trauma and flooding and overwhelm. And that dynamic around the partner that's been betrayed, like I have this partner that my partner's caused all this trauma and all mm -hmm. this suffering and all this pain, and I need them to heal from it. That dilemma mm -hmm. that that creates yeah. uh, can be really muddy and really challenging. And then for the partner that's done the betraying, you know, that sense of I've created all this trauma and pain for my partner and they mm. still need me to be there and comfort them, That's that yeah. can feel like a very strange place to be in. Mm. Um, and the Gottmans have a really nice, in, the, in their book, What Makes Love Last, um, they have a trust revival method that's specific for affair recovery, which has some good science behind it. And it probably covers a lot of principles and a lot of different models that tend to work. Um, but it does tend to come in phases. You know, a lot, a lot of times the first phase is about atonement, being able mm -hmm. to, um, create transparency in the relationship, being able to disclose the reality of what's actually happened, yeah. being able to provide verification for a period of time, you know, passwords and all that good stuff. So there's mm -hmm. as much transparency and openness as possible. And just trying to stabilize the ship a little bit because it's a system mm -hmm. that's in tremendous crisis and trauma um, mm -hmm. and being able to create a little stability on that front end. And then from there, oftentimes, you know, being able to create the rituals of how do we check in with each other? You know, how do we talk through this in a way that feels productive? How do mm -hmm. we um, engage with the experience around the betrayal without using criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, mm -hmm. and contempt? Mm -hmm. and there's nothing mm -hmm. fair about it for the partner that's been betrayed, right? If yeah. I'm the partner that's been betrayed, I feel like I'm in my right to be contemptuous and critical and and yes. I completely understand that. And at the same time, in the spirit of knowing this is not fair, that the goal is to be heard. And mm -hmm. there's certain ways to express oneself that are going to really increase the probability that that betrayed partner is going to be heard. And some of that yeah. is about going to those core emotions and being able mm -hmm. to stay with the sadness and fear and the needs and, 
and that yeah. experience. And then the uh, for the partner that's done the betraying, you know, the common pattern is they kind of start in on it fairly motivated in the recovery process mm-hmm. and start to get impatient. Like my partner's still this triggered, mm-hmm. still this upset. And I try to normalize like it for trust in particular, it takes time and consistency to rebuild yes. trust. And there's no way to rush that time variable. And it might mm-hmm. take three to five years to get to a really more stable place. Not that the yeah, relationship yeah. in crisis for three to five years, but that's just the, the trajectory. Things will improve. There'll be ups and downs mm-hmm. like the stock market over time. But the, but you, the trend line can be up, but it takes it just takes that much time. Go ahead. There are, you know, we talk, we use the word an affair and it's like, oh, it's a thing. That's a lot like the mm-hmm. word homelessness, that there's a lot of different reasons for people being homeless. And one solution for a person who's a drug addict is not the same as a person who just lost their job. I feel the same way about people who have done the betraying because that occurred for a lot of different reasons. And so I picture the person who betrayed their spouse, but it came from a place of their, their own contempt for their marriage or things that happened. But then the second they enter this process, for many of them, they feel like they don't have a right to ever get back to those core things that were wounded that set the stage for that. And certainly the person who was betrayed is not going to be uh, normally in a, in a place where they're like, yes, let's talk about your hurts and why you did this. <laughs> so what's the encouragement to give to that person that's like, wow, I, I basically just ruined my shot at being heard with my hurts and wounds. This wasn't just about me wanting sex. This was about far more than that. And I don't feel like I have a right to bring that out anymore. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I tend to, um, and you're, you're getting at the core part of, you know, what makes this work complex and interesting, but also challenging is we have these models. A lot of the models are wonderful, great science behind them. But when you zoom into the complexity of people's lived experience, at some level, you know, the map isn't the territory. Everyone has these idiosyncratic dynamics that um, have to be met where they're where they're at. I do try to frame it out as trying to create space for a few different realities, even if those realities feel like they're a bit intention or a few different experiences. Mm-hmm. And uh-huh. I try to make it clear that no matter what was happening in the relationship, before the affair, the relationship didn't cause the affair, right? There's, at the end of the day, the person has to take accountability. There's a million mm-hmm. different things they could have done to, right. and not yeah, had yeah. an affair. They could have gone right. to counseling, mm-hmm. they could have helped, they could have, there's a million different ways. So, you know, being able to take that facet of accountability and be clear about that um, is important. And at the same time, there are conditions in relationships that increase the probability that mm-hmm. people step outside the relationship. And both of those things can be true together, even if they sit in some kind of tension. And in those cases, you know, we, I try to create space where people can, um, we can spend time in sessions talking about both people's experiences and being able to still engage in the affair recovery process where there is the transparency, accountability, verification, where there is the remorse that's able to get mm-hmm. expressed partner where there are rituals to proactively talk about the experience in the recovery process, while at the same time, we can talk through what was happening 
in the relationship that was making it to where maybe neither person at some level felt like they were getting their needs met. Ideally, that is a little bit more phase two of the process where we zoom out further and look at the relationship in general and what was healthy and what wasn't working about it even before the affair. But oftentimes I don't have the luxury of waiting till just phase two and for that partner to feel like they're still in the old cycle um, where they're still not feeling heard. And it's hard to have empathy for my partner if I've had 10 years of feeling like I haven't been heard by them. Mm -hmm. So I try Mm -hmm. to run those processes parallel, but they do not sit in, there is a tension there uh, for sure. And, And obviously, even when we talk about these things, the fear is always that the betrayed person feels like this is shifting the blame and victim blaming and all of that. Because even just running those parallel and saying, no, no, this was still their choice. This was still wrong. That doesn't change. That that must be incredibly difficult because it's hard for us to even figure out how to talk about it without going, but this is not victim blaming. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. And and I'll try to be open too with my feelings. Oftentimes I will feel afraid in that moment Mm -hmm. where I'm trying to create space for two different experiences. Um, and I'll share like my fear in that is that this could come across as shifting blame over and, mm-hmm. you know, here's how I view it and here's how I view that dynamic. And this is not about shifting blame. This other partner is hundred mm-hmm. percent accountable, responsible for their decision mm-hmm. to step outside the relationship and to further traumatize. And they could have picked a lot of other options that they didn't mm-hmm. pick and your anger and rage is totally justified. Um, and at the same time, is it okay to create space for what was happening for your partner in their experience? And I'll mm-hmm. often ask, like a lot of my work with couples, I really try to be autonomy supportive. I'll ask lots of permission. Is it okay if we go here or not? And if mm-hmm. it's not okay, that's totally okay. Let's talk through why it doesn't feel okay. Um, and so I don't try to, I really try to meet people where they're, where they're at. I try not to override blocks. I try to explore the blocks blocks to expressing emotion, blocks to being connected, because I think there's um, so much self-awareness that can come from that. And then I really try to create a process that both partners feel like would work for them and that honors both of their needs well enough, (laughs) though there can be a tension there for sure. Well, let me ask one more question that hopefully the answer will bring hope. If it ends up being a question where you're like, yeah, no, no hope there. This will be a bad last question. Sean, you can cut this one out. (laughs) there there seems to be two things at play while you're talking one is people having a lack of tools that they can learn and they can employ and anybody can do that the second was you mentioned earlier emotional iq how aware are people how empathetic are they how do they pick up social cues that is going to play a big part, I imagine, in people moving into this kind of work to have a strong and awesome relationship. How changeable is a person's emotional IQ? How much can they increase? Because this is not just like a normal intelligent quotient numbers that it's kind of what it is. So how much can a person grow in their emotional IQ or can they? It's a great, great question. Um, yeah, it, it's it's interesting with the challenge with the tools 
is oftentimes the tools reinforce pursue withdraw patterns, the tools mm -hmm. in isolation, right? So now the pursuer is like, hey, we got these tools at the retreat. Why aren't we using them? Yeah. Withdrawer feels <laughs> criticized, starts to shut down. They're back in their cycles. So these, these cycles are really, really tricky. There's a few, few dynamics. I do think just realistically, I think because so much of what would block someone's sort of emotional intelligence kind of going back to the trauma piece, so much mm -hmm. of it was grooved out so early that it, it's, it's, it is a challenge. There's, there's no question about it. Um, what I do find is that even a small shift, a bump in IQ, so to speak, makes a huge, huge difference. You know, if someone tends to be more withdrawing and they can just turn to their partner and share, yeah, when I shut down on you, like, I just feel really like anxious and I just don't know mm -hmm. what to do. And I just don't want to make it worse. Like that's a very different, that allows for a very different interpretation of the shutdown. Like, oh, you do matter mm -hmm. to me. You get anxious mm -hmm. and you don't know what to do and you don't want to make it worse. And there's care in that message. That's a very different message than just the shutdown with the partner is going to interpret as, see, this person doesn't care. I'm not loved in the relationship. So I do find that emotion uh, uh, is a potent uh, substance. And even a small dosing that's beyond what's been in the relationship can have a powerful impact. Um, and the nice thing about these, these moments too is they tend to be patterned. And I always see couple, I'm a family systems, that's my whole history. So I just see things in feedback loops and cycles and you know, mm -hmm. I know when someone comes in, I'm not thinking like, oh, what's the diagnosis or, you know, what do we, it's just all like, okay, when partner A does this, how does partner B respond? And then how does partner A respond in response? And does that align with their goals or not? And if it's not like, okay, let's create patterns that are aligned with their goals, usually of connection. So once they can see, once I know like, oh, when I shut down, I'm actually scared. That's going to replicate endless times in my relationship. And now that I have the language I've kind of cracked the code and now I have my mm -hmm. internal pattern. And that's a lot of what we do in sessions is to help people that aren't able to create the language to create that. And then to be able to see those patterns in themselves and their partner, um, you know, outside of the sessions over time, I have more hope. It's interesting. Someone asked me, you know, sometimes I'll get empathy from clients. Like, I don't know how you do the work you do. And, you mm -hmm. know, it, especially if there were some challenging sessions, um, but it's interesting. I was reflecting back, like I have more hope in people's capacity for change and, um, more, um, faith and, um, just belief in the importance of how intimate long-term relationships can be crucibles for growth after being a couples therapist for 20 years mm -hmm. and seeing the shifts and, and seeing the changes and, if people weren't um, capable of, of making some of those those core shifts, I imagine I, I, I probably would have left the profession many, many years ago. <laughs> yeah. But I don't want to minimize the challenge in it. It is, it's, it's, it's a tough thing. It takes motivation and it definitely takes energy over time. Well, listeners, uh, we have been visiting with George. Hold on Guitar. one second. Sorry, hold on. I didn't uh, know. We mic. couldn't hear you there for a minute, Aaron. Okay. I know my mic was muted. I try to minimize background noise, but now I know why nobody was listening to me when I kept asking the same question. Uh, yeah. You guys aren't mean after all. Um, we're, not, we're not withdrawing. We're not. You're not off. withdrawing. <laughs> we're just going to ignore Aaron for the rest of this time. Okay, George, tell yeah. me if I heard you correctly. 
so I asked if people feel like I don't think I have a very I don't have much emotional intelligence. And so my question was kind of, do you need to increase your emotional intelligence to use the tools? And what I'm hearing you say is that using the tools is what is going to help bump up that emotional intelligence. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the, yeah, that, that sense of, I don't have, I I don't feel like I'm very emotionally intelligent. I've got to increase the emotional intelligence first before using the tools. Yeah, that would, that would be potentially really challenging. And I also see this, I, I see it sometimes with partners. I'm a big fan of individual therapy. I think it's wonderful. And our best crucible for growth is our intimate relationships because they activate mm-hmm. experiences that no other relationship activates because there's so much mm-hmm. on the line and our partners matter to us so much. And so being able to practice the tools along with the um, engagement in the relationship and being able to see these patterns, being able to identify what I'm feeling. And the Gottmans have great tools for how do we repair once we've gotten disconnected, even in infant mother interactions, the mothers and infants are misattuned a big percentage of the time. It really, Mm -hmm. what creates a secure base isn't being connected all the time. It's moving from connection to disconnection back into connection. It's that Mm -hmm. process. And that's why the Gottmans focus so much on repair because conflicts inevitable, disconnections inevitable. It's not a sign something's wrong. It's just what happens next. And they have a great tool for repair. They have a great tool for navigating perpetual problems. It's called dreams within conflict. All couples have perpetual problems that they argue about for 30, 40, 50 years. Differences in sex drives, what we do on weekends, finances, in-laws, parenting. It's just how do couples navigate those perpetual problems? that determines whether or not they're on good trajectories or more difficult trajectories. So being able to go through those tools, in a lot of those tools, there is a lot of emotion focus. And so it allows Mm. the person to identify what they're feeling. And the Gottmans have like a list in the repair process where people go through and just name the feeling without going any further yet. And they start in that place. They also have a process in that repair tool where people go back and talk about how this connects to their family of origin and why this is an enduring vulnerability for them to be able to sensitize their partner to those danger cues and what can feel triggering. Mm-hmm. And so going through those tools, a lot of those tools do reinforce that sort of emotional vocabulary, which is a great starting point. Yeah. So take hope listeners. If you feel like you're bad at this, or you think that your spouse is hope absolutely without hope of growing, there's totally hope. Shut up, mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. totally and and i I will go back to faith and i it's a you know the we had a a workshop um several months ago and and for a lot of couples and then we went home and we got in a fight you know so Mm -hmm. and then we got back and repaired it and you know got better in that space but i just want to normalize the conflict is just inevitable disconnections inevitable because oftentimes what i find if people don't trust and they didn't have the experience as children where conflict got repaired. They see Mm -hmm. conflict and they think bad, negative, not good. And then that reinforces the negative cycles, but being able to see conflict and disconnection as inevitable, but there's a way to come back to repair. And there's a way not to have the the conflict escalate in ways that are more traumatizing or more destructive is really a lot of the goal. Don't catastrophize the disconnection. Nate, I think you can wrap up this whole show 
Well, I, I want our listeners, first of all, thank you so much, George. You and Faith, now you have a practice in Scottsdale, Arizona. You've been there for a couple of years. You also still have a practice back in Charlotte. Is that true? Yeah, we have some awesome clinicians that work out of the practice. A lot of my clients I still see via Zoom online. Um, oh, okay. Carolina, so we have a practice there. And then we do intensives. Uh, we're actually in Carefree, just north of Scottsdale. So we have a, a physical location here as well. Um, and then we do intensives here. We also do the workshops in collaboration with the Gottman Institute, the Art and Science of Love workshops. And I think the okay. next one that we're doing is in February for that. So it's a good Valentine's gift if a couple. Okay. Okay. And how would our listeners? How would our listeners find you online? Where should they go? It's a uh, connectcouplestherapy.com. Okay. All right. And, and, my, and in my, the meanwhile, my wife is awesome with social media. So there's Instagram and all sorts of other things that I'm not plugged into, okay. but she does awesome on that you could find uh, on the website too. All right. Yeah. In the meantime, if listeners want to kind of start to get up to speed, gain a little momentum, you've mentioned the Gottman several times. Is there one book that you can recommend to listeners who kind of want to get started down this road? Yeah, uh, great question. The there's if I could do two books. One of the books would be the okay. Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, which is like the classic Gottman text. It has a lot okay. of these tools in it, so it has a tool for navigating perpetual problems, for nurturing the friendship, uh, for repairing following disconnection, for carving out rituals of connection. Rituals are huge for couples that are on a good path, uh, and then also how to build up trust and commitment in the relationship. So it has tools for for all of those different areas. And then the other book I, I love is a book called Hold Me Tight by Susan mm. Johnson, which is more emotionally yeah. focused. Couples therapy deals more with these pursue, withdraw kind of dynamics. And I find those two approaches together just pack a, a really powerful um, punch and uh, are often needed. Um, and so I, I definitely recommend those two. Fantastic. All right. Once again, thank you so very much. I hope that we will see and hear from you uh, many more times in the future. I look forward oh, to meeting Faith one day. Yeah, that'd be great. We'll have to bring her in at, at some point. She'd probably have a different story to some of the anecdotes I mentioned. <laughs> you could do a couple <laughs> therapy. <with her. laughs> Nathan, thank you so much. It was good meeting you and Aaron. Listeners, we want to hear from you as well. So send your thoughts or questions in to Pirate Monk Podcast at gmail.com. And uh, let us know if you have any questions that we can address on the show. And George, it was very nice meeting you too. Oh, he left. Yeah. So wrap us up, Nate. <laughs> All right. Hey, uh, it, it was uh, it was great to listen to a guy who, what, twenty years of experience, uh, able very clearly to articulate, to listen, to process, to articulate, to explain. I found this conversation very very helpful i already have hold me tight in my bookshelf i'm going to get that other gottman text and see what that might do to help Allie and me um and as you said aaron uh we really do value input from the listeners so take a minute drop us a line at pirate monk podcast at gmail.com well, that's it for this episode. Until next time, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And we are your pal on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Tark. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. 
Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com. <laughs>